Welcome to Counter Stories, a show by people of color for people of color and everyone else. I'm Hui Lee, owner of the Other Media Group, Counter Stories producer and VP of programming at Ampers. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. And I'm Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. Luz cannot be here with us today, but we do have a special guest, and I'll have him introduce himself. Uh, I'm David Murrah. I'm a writer of uh, creative nonfiction, poetry, uh, fiction, and uh, essays. Uh, I'm the author of The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, Racial Myths and Our American Narratives. Um, that's my most recent book. My book before that was an anthology that I edited with Carolyn Holbrook entitled We Are Meant to Rise, Voices for Justice from Minneapolis to the World. And it's an anthology of Minnesota BIPOC writers. And many of the essays deal with the pandemic or with the murder of George Floyd and the demonstrations that followed. And my book before that was called uh, A Stranger's Journey, uh, race, identity, and narrative craft and writing. And much of the book is about why the issues of race and the traditions of writers of color are absolutely essential to the teaching of creative writing for all uh, emerging writers. Thank you, David. Um, we did get advanced copies of your latest uh, book, as you mentioned, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, Racial mm -hmm. Myths and American Narratives. And we've all bookmarked a whole bunch of pages and highlighted a bunch of stuff and written things like, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, highlighted things like, yes, this. How can we make sure everyone hears and reads this part? Um, what was y'all's reaction? My overall reaction was, um, I think, David, you did a, a wonderful job articulating what sometimes I personally stumble over when I'm trying to talk about the, um, the knowing that we as Native Americans, African Americans, Black, people of color, have always understood in this country in terms of the two different realities. Yes. And as, you know, that reality hits us at different times, I've I've mentioned on Counter Stories that for me there was this awakening when I was in elementary school that things just weren't adding up, right? I mean, it, it was somewhere along in there between elementary school and junior high school, that I realized that what I was watching on TV wasn't my reality and never would be. And But your book, there are often times when we on Counter Stories have talked about George Floyd, have talked about Dante Wright. You know, this program actually started as a way for us to be able to share our different perspectives from our various communities of color and American Indian community on current events. I mean, that was the initial intent of Counter Stories. But at the time we started it, as you mentioned, photographic um, fo folks with smartphones were recording these interactions, usually between police and black men. And which resulted in the deaths of, and there's just too many, I mean, too many to mention because it seemed like every other week when we came into the studio to record, we were talking about the recent, another recent death of a black man at the hands of police. Mm -hmm. And, but often in those deeper discussions, um, I, I personally found myself stumbling sometimes to explain the differences between how we perceive, how we see the world, the reality of the world as we see it as people of color, but often how we're dealing with individuals, white individuals, who will nod and, and, and agree and, and tell us, yes, yes, we understand 
And you know damn good and well they don't understand. (laughs) And you just know it. And so, but to try to articulate that in a manner that helps them understand, and yet we as as members of various communities of color always find ourselves often, sometimes, not always, me personally, um, how do we how do we how do we explain that in a manner where you're not being perceived as the angry this or the angry mm-hmm. that? You know what I'm saying? It's it, it's like we often have to tiptoe around that white fragility. Yes. And and after a while you get tired of tiptoeing around that white fragility. And so your book for me put it in print in language that I found very easy to understand, but yet at the same time will be denied (laughs) by the very individuals who you're highlighting and talking about. That was my initial reaction. I like the, the one of the, the end chapters, the brief guide to structural racism where you oh, get the appendix, just, yeah. Yeah, and just bullet points, you know? And I was like, I I just like I was starting to highlight and I was like, whatever, I'm I'd highlight the whole chapter. Right. Can, can I, I was just say, to that's, highlight. That's the most gangster thing. I, I that was one of the most gangster things about the book. Cause it was like, uh, oh yeah, here you go. Use this appendix. I'm not gonna spend time mm-hmm. on on stuff you can do yourself. So here's, a, I, I loved it. I loved it. It was just it, 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 Don's cr- exactly right. It was explaining things like sometimes when I talk to to white people and I say you, you know, they say I understand. I say you don't understand, and it's okay that you don't understand. They they get very defensive. Like, but I do understand. I I grew up poor too. You know, like those sorts of things. And it's like it's it's very different. And it's okay that you don't understand, but they somehow feel like they're being attacked or that their experience is being demeaned or something. And this book, if I could just have all of them read it, is very, very explains so much in such ways that I can't put those words together in such a way that you can, David. Well, thank you. I mean, one one of the things that I always say when I speak to audiences is I say, I'm not here to guilt and shame you, right? I don't believe we change people through guilt and shame. We change people through knowledge and love. So I'm here to offer you knowledge, but you have to be in a receptive mode to this. And there's no one in America who can be perfect about race because none of us knows Mm -hmm. everything about every group. We're all gonna step in it sometimes, make mistakes, may say something that might be offensive that we didn't realize be ignorant of things that we don't realize we're ignorant. We have things we don't know and things we don't know we don't know. And Mm -hmm. so the subject of race is actually far more complicated than perhaps you've been thinking about. And I've been thinking about and writing about race for all my life, and I'm still not to the end of understanding how race works in America. And so we just have to all go on this journey to just begin you know, continue this process of learning about each other, learning about each other's realities, learning each other, about each other's narratives, and learning what actually the history of our country has been. You know, th- there's a reason why the book, Marlon James calls the book Fearless, Illuminating, and Revolutionary. I got a very different sense um, because what was resonating for me wasn't about the many, many conversations I've had where somebody got it or didn't get um, I didn't get a sense in reading through this book that um, you you spent much time worrying about that at all. Uh, <laughs> just looking at how it was how 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 things came forward, and it wasn't just the subject matter. But uh, what was refreshing for me was uh, the format of the book that just said let, let let's let's look at some moments. Let's let's reexamine how the the narratives that we've come up with and in. I, I, the the Lincoln chapter was my favorite chapter, by the way, and I know we'll get to that in a second because I think that it, it forms such an important distinction in our American racialized psyche. Um, we are taught and force taught for many reasons that Lincoln is this perfect character in this space because he, I can point to to say somebody who looked like me opposed slavery. Um, at least that's what we're taught. 
Um, and the unpacking of the dual complexities before we even get into him being what the second largest native killer, in, indigenous killer mm-hmm. uh, of all of our American presidents, only surpassed by Andrew Jackson. Like, like before we even get to to to, to that piece, you have this this you you, you narrate this wonderful important uh, meeting where Lincoln. Uh, one of several times tries to get black leaders. I should add that many of the folks who were who were at the White House in the story that you describe were um, black clergy, uh, mm-hmm. and many of them members of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, who basically told him what he could do with his his assertion that that they should jump sign on to this idea of repatriating back to the continent of Africa, mm-hmm. um, because it takes something that we hold so sacred. And it just lays it out, right? Um, I think the chapter itself, uh, it says Lincoln was a great American, Lincoln was a racist. Like, we, we've got to contend with the fact that both of those things can be true. And I think mm-hmm. you gave that an amazing treatment that signaled to me that this this isn't to try to, that that, that you weren't uh, trying to, at least it didn't, I didn't get the sense that you were trying to, to take into account at all um, the predictable reactions. Instead, just laying it out, <laughs> Some of the ways of thinking differently about the same stories we all grew up with, I can Im- yes. and I imagine in in reading this, the people that were coming to my mind weren't so much white folks, but people of color who mm-hmm. I have experienced, seen, heard, <laughs> um, engage in the same mythos that you are pointing out here. And so, like, I wanted to put in, put it into the hands of a whole lot of folks, and not only my family, but even in Christian evangelical spaces to say, yo, let's contend with some of these things. And so I find it very useful in that way. You You know, I'm sorry, David, I just have to jump in real quick to take that a step deeper. Okay. (laughs) And I always, always do it on a personal level. So I've been sober, I think 33 or 34 years. When I, when I went into treatment, they administered a psychological test, right, to help determine my whatever at the time. It was called the MMPI. Um, and what, there's a question that has always stuck in my mind. And the question was, who did you consider the better president? George Washington or Abraham Lincoln? And I looked at that question and I thought, well, Washington owned slaves. Lincoln was a racist, but at least he did the Emancipation Proclamation and ended up freeing them, knowing, knowing at the time that he advocated and never wanted freed slaves to actually be a part of the society. So as a person of color, we're always forced to pick between two evils. I mean, (laughs) you've heard me say that on counter stories, right? Normally when Mm -hmm. we go to the polls, I have to select the lesser of two evils. Mm -hmm. And so to answer this question, I checked Abraham Lincoln. And don't you know that was one of the marker questions? And I selected the wrong one. (laughs) <laughs> and I objected to the psychologist that went over the outline of that because I told him how racist the entire goddamn thing was. <laughs> and I was unable to articulate what David so clearly articulates in his book. And I, But at the time, I didn't have the words. I didn't have the interrelations down. You know what I'm saying? And so... I'm sorry, David. I just had to share that. No, thank you. Thank you. I I, I think the thing about Lincoln that people always say, or white people say, is you have to judge him according to the moral climate of his times. And Mm -hmm. so what I say in the stories whiteness tells itself, I say, let's look at that story of these African-American ministers who went to the White House, and Lincoln told them, the least white man is better than the best of your race, and you will never become part of America. Now, that's clearly racist, but people say, well, yes, but Lincoln was not as racist as the slave owners, and so you have to judge him according to how people viewed uh, morality and race. And what I point out is, 
Weren't those black ministers Americans? Weren't they living at the same time as Abraham Lincoln? Didn't they think that they were equal to Abraham Lincoln? Didn't they think what he was saying about their ability to belong to America was wrong? So why aren't you including those black ministers <laughs> in your picture of the moral climate of the times? Mm -hmm. And instead, what you've completely done is erase those black ministers from history. You've erased them from part of America, but you're not erasing them in 1864 or 1863. You're erasing them right now in the present because subconsciously, you don't actually believe that those black ministers were part of America at the time. And in a way, you still don't believe that they're part of America. And that is clearly racist. I, I love that so much. You know, you say in that same chapter, you take it even a step further uh, in bringing in Charles Dickens' description of encountering our racist situation here. Um, you say, after you quote what Dickens says about slavery, very poignantly and directly, you say, after one trip to America, this is on uh, page 141, after one trip to America, Dickens could make a condemnation of slavery that so many other white Americans, including Lincoln, could not bring themselves to make. And Dickens made it nearly 20 years before Lincoln became president. So, yeah. so even later on, when you talk about the white, you know, you know, the whole thing is white. The story's whiteness tells itself, but reconstructing these narratives for ourselves, you know, I think is really important to that what you had just said there and erasing the other folks, erasing the whole group of critiques, even amongst other white folks, even amongst uh, folks from different countries, that yeah. there were always these critiques that were there and had access to. So you don't get absolved. You don't get. You don't get a pass for having grown up in a particular time, especially when the exact same things, to your point, that are being that are being criticized right now were criticized at the time by people um, living in their real time, right? That morality no, and, had and access. One of the points of my book, The Story's Whiteness Tells Itself, is that if you lower the moral bar, I mean, of course we have to understand the climate of the times for any period in, in history, or any period in American history. We have to understand what uh, the white population thought of as normal, right? We have to understand that. But if you lower the moral bar in judging the past, it makes it much easier to lower the moral bar in judging or acknowledging racism in the present. That's good. And That's good. if mm. you don't look to the past and understand how white supremacy and racism was created, you can't understand the racism of today, which was created by the history that you want not to look at. And might the, I, might I, um, my question or my, yeah, my question is, David, has anything really changed? Well, I, I, I think there are, there are changes, but obviously because, you know, um, my grandfather was not allowed to become a citizen or own property. I can, I'm a citizen and I can alone, own property. So I, I think there are changes. What we don't really see is the continuity. Like, for instance, you know, uh, recently Governor Ron DeSantos, DeSantis banned the Florida AP African American Studies course. And which was created by African-American writers and scholars. Now think back when the Africans first came here. The white slave owners forbid them to teach each other their languages, their culture, and their history. Now we have a white governor in 2023 forbidding African-American writers and scholars from presenting their culture and history. Mm. There's a direct line between that mm -hmm. white slave owner and Ron DeSantis, and we don't see it necessarily. Oh, thus my question, had yeah. anything changed? Well, <laughs> So, yeah, policies so, were put in place yeah. that allowed you home ownership, that allowed you these kind of things. They made us, uh, now, we're the original inhabitants of this yeah. country, and the United States didn't make us citizens till till 1924, 1925. I mean, you know, well after the emancipation of, of slaves in, in this country. So 
I, but I guess I'm talking about you know that moral aptitude, that that moral righteousness, that that uh, manifest destiny, that that thinking from whiteness that it was their God given right. Um, because I always I I could I I often struggled with how whiteness can can deny and or not deal with the fact of of transgressions against every community of color that has been in this country and yet go around thinking that they have this moral righteous dominion as dictated through their 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 scriptures or whatever i mean it it to me it i don't know how how you can have that dichotomy and 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 exist, you know what I mean? Without and so well, your book here's, here's the way it exists is that you know what I in the book I talk when I say stories whiteness tells itself, I'm speaking of whiteness as an ideology, as a set of ideas, beliefs, rules, and practices, which established white supremacy in this country and continues to maintain it. Now, obviously, that's that set of rules, beliefs, ideas, and practices is not genetically inherent to white people, but it does govern how white people see the world. And one of the rules of whiteness is that white knowledge is always uh, valid, objective, true, and official. White knowledge is always uh, valid, objective, true, and official. Black knowledge or knowledge by people of color is always invalid, subjective, suspicious or false, and unofficial, unless white people decree it's, it, it, it's okay. And that evaluation of knowledge is something that white people don't even realize that they actually constantly practice, that our ability to evaluate knowledge and, and, and you know, we're the ultimate uh, arbiters of what is truth, right? And that's exactly what DeSantis is doing. He's not an African-American scholar. He's not an African-American writer. He hasn't studied African-American culture and history. And yet he believes because he's a white person, he can look at that and say it has no educational value, right? And, and, and so this, this thing about knowledge is something which runs through every area of our society in any encounter between people of color and white people is, you know, because, you know, I, I just want to make this point because there is ample evidence that black people receive half the pain medication for certain conditions, uh, for the same conditions that white people do, and they wait longer for pain medication uh, for the same condition that white people and receive less pain medication than white people for the same conditions. Now, some of this is obviously that the, the black patients are telling the white doctors, you know, I feel pain and they're not believing them, right? The white doctor thinks, well, I can judge your pain. But there's also something else there. Linda Villarosa in her book, Under the Skin, which is a study of racial disparities in the health field, cites a study in 2016, this is 2016, of 222 white medical students. And half of those white medical students profess some form of the belief that black people feel less physical pain than white people. Now, when we see, so yep. I don't think those white <laughs> medical students are members of the KKK, I, I think, most of them would say, if you believe in racial equality, uh, they would say they believe that. But this goes then to the past, because we go, let's not think of the past like, like slavery. Now, Thomas Jefferson was a leading ideologist and proponent of slavery during his time. He was a very articulate man, obviously, and he believed that blacks were inferior intellectually, morally, culturally, and that they were suited for slavery because 
they felt less physical pain than white people. So Jefferson is writing that idea in the 1700s, and it's still in half of these white medical students in 2016, infecting their minds. So when you say you want to forget the racism of Jefferson, you, you're, you, you don't see how it's present in the present. You know, I think it's important, as you lay that out so eloquently, um, to bring Thomas Jefferson in and any of the other racial scientists, Leclerc, um, Linnaeus, all of these different folks who are trying to, you know, in that French Enlightenment thinking uh, way, try to rationalize and scientificize, I'm going to make that word up because everybody else does, um, uh, way uh, of trying to back up something that's already already happening. Um, in the in the the dual nature piece of that, uh, I like to use that, that justification, right? There are societies to Monticello to uplift that history and keep it going, and there are societies to Carl Linnaeus, the Linnaean society, mm-hmm. to try to yeah. keep Linnaean's history. Now, here's the difference between the two. One of the first things you get when you go to the Monticello site is, you know, um, uh, Jefferson's line at one point who calls, and out of context, may I add, slavery a a moral, uh, a, a, a moral depravity and a hideous blot. But at the same time, in his own articles to the to the assemblies, we're writing something completely different. In fact. Uh, Lincoln would refer to Jefferson in, in, in some of his rationales about the fact that, as you said, as you state in your book, um, that blacks are not equal and not on equal footing and use that in an argument to the folks he tried to gather at the White House to say, you know, you'll never be equal with white folks in here because, you know, white folks in here are unequal. Why don't you want to go to a place where folks would be more concerned with your equality? Because this our stuff now, <laughs> Is this, if I'm paraphrasing. In contrast, the Linnaean society has Linnaeus's uh, racial writings and summations perfectly out there with all the charts and everything. And they're like, we're not even, we're not going to try to moralize whether or not he was right or wrong. He had contributions to taxonomy and here's his neg- negative contributions to si- quote unquote racial science. And they just put it out there and said, yo, here's the full person. And I think one of the things that's different is what exactly what you're talking about is that in our American mythos, we need to reform. Um, I think Dee McIntosh, he's a um, uh, a clergy leader um, and, and teacher at, 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 at she used to teach at, at Bethel College, but also, you know, um, in many other ways as a womanist author. She, she uh, brought to our class one time this idea of ontological shame, that, you know, when you feel shame, your brain will do two things, either... The hard work of walking through it, which takes some time and effort and help, or you can create a reality in which whatever it was that's causing the pain or the or the discomfort is completely written, rewritten, and makes up a whole new reality. And so, um, you know, you, you you do this dance. And I throughout the book, I could imagine all the spaces in which folks who are encountering new knowledge through your through your writing would be trying to do this dance of, do I accept the hard reality and try to do the work of re-retrofitting to Don's point, what's changed, right? Do I do that hard work? Or or do I say, well, maybe maybe there's a context that's missing at the time. Didn't Lincoln do good stuff? Wasn't he friends with Frederick Douglass? All these other excuses, right? That either deny what's real or put in place something that says, well, maybe it wasn't as bad as we thought. Yes. Like, that's well, what we do. You, know, you, take, you take Jefferson. The way we learn about Jefferson in our schools is he's the third president. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. He helped draft the Constitution. He was a brilliant thinker and writer. He was an architect. He was an inventor, one of the best minds of, the, uh, of his times. And he was instrumental in the, the creation and founding of America, which is all true. But then if I told you this man held 600 people in chattel slavery in bondage and that he impregnated a 16-year-old girl who, who you know, had no choice to refuse him and that Sally Hemings was one-quarter black, so her, their children were one-eighth black, 
People would say to Jefferson, sure looks like you, Tom, these kids. But he kept his own children as slaves. He kept the mother of his children as slaves. Now, if I told you a person down the block was doing that, you would go, that person is a psychologically depraved criminal, right? And we can't look away from that because we have to understand then, how could this man write, all men are created equal and do this? How could he contradict his own thinking? And then how could he justify what he's doing? And unless we understand that human beings can justify any sort of evil to themselves, right? You can't see that maybe we're justifying racism in the present in ways that a hundred years from now, people will look back and go, man, that was really obvious. I don't understand why people didn't see it back then. You really take a, a historical look uh, as we've been talking about with Lincoln and Jefferson. Uh, one thing as I was reading those and you start digging into and using kind of modern examples, in my mind, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I see how you can, you know, g come to the conclusion. I It also seems to me that it may not, like a, a, a white person reading the book may not come to that same conclusion that I had of, oh, yeah, I can totally see how that relates or how you came to that conclusion. Um, it made me wonder, like, am I, am I the target audience for this book? I mean, when you were writing this, was there a target audience? I mean, you know, I feel I felt a little like I'm reading this as if like you were preaching to the choir, right? That uh, I, I these are things that we already know, uh, not to this level, obviously. And so it gives me a lot of historical background and it makes me think of things like, you know, we all knew Jefferson had slaves and Jefferson impregnated slaves, but it really allowed me to think deeper about those issues um, with all with all the research and, the, and all the insight that you offered, but it didn't make me, make me think of who was the audience you were thinking of when you were writing this book. Well, I was writing to an audience that would recognize the truth and recognize the the um, logic and consistencies of the analysis and the arguments I make in the book and. Throughout American history, white Americans have been gaslighting Americans of color uh, of their own reality. It's like what you're witnessing and experience white white whiteness would tell to people of color doesn't exist, right? And so what I want people to understand is that racism in the society work is far more complicated and is far deeper inside the way people perceive the world and think about themselves than they realize. I mean, you take a statistic like blacks and whites smoke marijuana at exactly the same rate, and yet blacks are 3.64 times or four point times more likely to be arrested. Then they're more likely to go to trial, more likely to be convicted, more likely to be sentenced, more likely to sentence, be sentenced to longer prison terms. And if you say this all of this exists because there's just a few bad apples in the police. That doesn't make any sense. And it's systemically voted, you know, it, it, it's in the way people think. Take the definition of racism. What most white, pe most white people think about racism, they think, oh, it's somebody who belongs like to the KKK or is a member of a hate group. And right. you're only a racist right. if you profess racial hatred or you actively discriminate against somebody, and you admit that's the reason why you're doing it, right? Now, mm -hmm. nobody in America, even the KKK, will say that they're racist and say that they did something by racist means. Now, we th the Supreme Court ruled in, one of, in, in this uh, case, McCleskey uh, v. Georgia over the application of the death penalty in uh, Georgia. And you, if you were a black person who killed a white person, you were far more likely to receive the, the death penalty than if you're a white person to kill a black person, right? And the Supreme Court ruled, yeah, there's the statistical evidence, but absent any declaration of intent of racism, we can't 
We can't declare that there was racism here. And the Supreme Court said, because if we did that, we would have to think that the whole system was racist. You know, and there has to be this, they sort of say this phrase, I can't remember exactly, there, there has to be a sort of tolerable limit of, you know, discrimination. So when you take the definition of racism and says people have to openly declare their racism, and nobody declares that, then you've created a definition where racism does not exist, which allows white people to say, look at race, nobody admits they're racist, so racism does not exist in our society. Now, who sets this definition, right? I mean, Ron DeSantis defines woke in his administration as any profession of systemic injustices in America. So if you cannot even say, or you can't even bring up the, the question of systemic injustice, right? You've already set the table so that you win the argument. And so what I want people to see is like, and this was for people of color, is like, we don't have to agree to these definitions. We don't have to ag agree to the terms of your no. argument. Why would we agree to a definition of racism which doesn't exist and you can't prove? It's your definition. It doesn't have to be my definition. And let's start from there. See, you're, you're clear, you're clear honoring of James Baldwin came through on that thrust right there alone. Of course, you reference Baldwin in, in, in the writings here, especially in the repetitions of history. But it was that piece comes through in the book for me. And it's so Baldwin-esque. Like, like, why are we continuing to invest in the, the psychological torment that, that uh, whiteness as a thing creates? And I think it's important for us in our own self-examination, because there are practices and things that we do that perpetuate the very things here, even as folks of color. And I think that was the part that just hit me with like a, like a whoa. Um, your comparison, for example, of Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, Absalom to Toni Morrison's Beloved, like that, that right there, I grew up with Absalom, Absalom, Absalom as like, here you go, here is the measure for what it means to be white and address and tell the story and, and it's a classic and all those kinds of things. And I gave that in my mind so the same level of credence as somebody like Toni Morrison who has to do, is, has to be as explicit and direct as she, as she does and paint such a vivid picture just to get out there and say the thing with all the other issues that she has to jump through, right? And, 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 and that piece for me really starts to hit at that core that that there is something here for all of us to disinvest from. And I mean, you you give some some examples of things to do or contend with, but it's not enough to know enough. You also have to like uh, I think you make a, a reference to um, to a Zen quote around having to empty the mind, right? Like you have to you have to stop the stuff that's wired and designed to resist new knowledge, um, and and that's a huge thing. I think that's a crux of what we're encountering now. And you, of course, you give that treatment as you look at um, the the reactions comparing Trump to Obama era to, to um, I forget the chapter name. I think it's racial regression, I think. But but this this we are still contending with this notion that we are perpetuating and continuing these these things to ourselves and maybe even passing it along to yeah, next well, generations you know, part um, of it is without seriously I, I, contending I, I, with their implications. Oh, this whole book owes enormous debt to Baldwin um, and in many ways was inspired years ago by first reading The Devil's Finest Work where he goes over American films and just says how these classic American films just lie about race, lie about our history, lie about our race relations. And... Um, the thing about Baldwin was that he recognized that race was not only a political issue, but it was a, or a moral issue. It was a spiritual issue. And one of the things I say in the book at the end is that to question the way race is presented in this country traditionally through whiteness, people have to begin to change their identities. And Baldwin said, "Identity is a garment." 
identity is a question inducing the most profound panic. A terror is primary. It's a nightmare of the mortal fall, which means, he says, like, it's as scary as death. And he says, the only thing that gives us the power to change the world is remembering that we're human and we're fallible and that our, we, our identities are not who we are. We can change them. And one of the things that white people can do is abandon these rules of whiteness, which determine how we look at the world. You know, you take Moms for Liberty, that conservative group that's sprouting all, all across the country. They want to ban things like the story of Ruby Bridges, a six-year-old black girl who desegregated a, a school in New Orleans in 1960 and faced, went to the school facing jeering, insulting, yelling crowds of adult white people. And Moms for Liberty says, well, we should ban this because it, it will hurt and make our white children feel bad. Now, you know this is racist because my own children, who are half Japanese-American, half white American, read this and didn't make them feel bad. It made them feel angry. It made them feel, feel inspired by the story of this brave six-year-old girl who, who faced injustice and, and changed the country. And Moms for Liberty never shows that they think there's a possibility, oh, my white children could be inspired by this, right? And then there's this whole thing about being worried about these stories about race and history upsetting and, and, and damaging white children. But Moms for Liberty says nothing about the fact that every black parent in this country must tell their children narratives, stories, about police brutality and police murder so that they can instruct their children on how to interact with the police. So if Moms for Liberty were so concerned about the fragility of children, there would be where they would be starting and, 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 and creating a society which black parents do not have to tell their children those stories. But that's not their concern. And so the, you know, again, it's, the you know I hope people read your book. I hope white people read your book. Mm-hmm. You know I also my children are half white and part black, part Native American, um, and so I find myself in those white spaces, having these conversations quite a bit, and the frustration of of having just conversations that are on that side of the family that are just embedded in whiteness. Mm -hmm. And then when I begin to start to point that out, then it turns into a whole different discussion Mm -hmm. that at the end, I walk away knowing that it made that none of them have any, have had any clue what I was really trying to talk about. (laughs) Yes. And absolutely. so, I mean, and it started with uh, little things like our son, when he was like four or five years old, and he would show up on my wife's side of the family. I noticed this odd thing that all of a sudden, because there were other nephews there who were white, nieces and nephews, but it was only with my son that when he was greeted by folks, they would say, slap me five. Mm-hmm. And I didn't say anything to them, but when we got home, I pointed it out to my significant mm-hmm. other. I said, you know, I find it very odd that mm-hmm. for some reason they think they're doing the right thing and acknowledging who he is mm-hmm. as a young lad of color by saying slap me five mm-hmm. when they don't do that with any of their other <coughs> grandsons or grandchildren, right? And so that was always that was always in this in that area of whiteness that I had a hard time to explain mm-hmm. to her why that bothered me, mm-hmm. um, and could sometimes could not always find the the correct interactions to be able to explain it like you do so well in your mm-hmm. book when you break down the differences between our political, our psychological, mm-hmm. the moral. You know, all the different aspects of, of, of who we are as as human beings um, and your 
I think you eloquently because you know the only other the only other writers that that um that I had written you know when I I attended McAllister College very early was thought I was going to be a history major because I thought I was going to go to school but quickly in history I <laughs> one of my first semesters uh, we were studying a utopian community called Oneida in the early 1600s. And I asked one simple question of my professor, why, how can we study this time period and not any of the indigenous populations that were there helping these folks survive? And her answer was, was honest and brutal. She told me, we study history from the perspective of those who conquered, not those who were vanquished. That was the one of the first honest answers yeah. I ever got. So I immediately dropped that class and fortunately there was a um an instructor there by the name of Mahmoud El Kati yeah. who then took us under his wings and began my education with Baldwin, Richard Wright, uh France Fanon mm -hmm. and for the first time in my life I read literature that totally understood who I was, where I was coming from, and gave me a, a horizon knowing that there were others before me, many others before me. I was just in this continuing long line. And it also made me realize that the more I learned, the more I understood that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so it was a, 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 an, an awakening. And I'm sorry, I kind of digress. I go off on the on these stories, but that's because I can relate so well to what you've written. You know, it just, it speaks to me. It also addresses, you know, you use the example of a, of a police arresting young blacks mm -hmm. versus whites as director of the chemical health division for the state. That statistic stood out like night and day that blacks were being sent to, to um, jail, but their white counterparts who lived in the, in the suburbs very seldom got stopped. And when they got stopped, they were directed to treatment or yes. they were brought home to their parents where young blacks were stopped for the same infraction and were taken to the police station and weren't offered treatment. And when individuals like myself tried to point that out to our elected officials, to my commissioners and to others, because I was a director. And when I tried to point out those discrepancies and the reasons why it was happening, I was a lone voice in this great white jungle called mm -hmm. DHS. And I was overlooked, ignored. And I mean, it, it was one of the most frustrating situations to be in where you're responsible for the entire state of Minnesota and getting folks into treatment and cleaned up, and yet you couldn't get your colleagues to understand the dynamics of what was happening. And and, and in order for, for them to even address it, we would get the same, oh, well, we need to create a task force. We need to examine that. Uh, then it gets put on a shelf. Another example of what you talked about was a research project that happened with Iowa State here in the state of Minnesota in the late 90s um, that came to look at preventative measures for indigenous youth. But while they were doing this research, they kept hearing these similar themes from indigenous populations across the reservations that they were doing this project, which, which, which without them looking at this, um, reinforced the findings by Dr. Celia, or, or um, uh, oh, now I'm blanking on her name, um, who came up with historical trauma. They brought those research results to DHS and asked if we could create a curriculum that could be used in treatment for indigenous populations to help them overcome historical trauma. And the response from DHS was, until this was validated, there was nothing they could do. Exactly what you had talked about. Here we were, and again, what was coming from our communities is dismissed as hearsay or secondhand information, invalidated, not you know, telling us we don't know what we're talking about. 
And um, and when I, I mean, I sat there and I, it, it just, it. Yeah, it, it's absolute gaslighting, gaslighting of you. Say so the reality that you know and you experience to the heart of your bone through everything you experience in life doesn't exist. We get to determine what's true for you. And when you try to explain that to others, we are the ones who are looked down. I am the one who 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 shared those experiences in a training at DHS uh, ten years ago, and have never been asked to come back and do any additional training after that. Yes, right. That, that, that's the way the system works. That's the that's story. The but when you say you know your your, your history teacher said uh, we just study the people who win history, right? Well, so what you're saying, what they're saying is you're just teaching us a false history. You're not teaching us the truth because all history ought to be everything that happened. History ought to be what all the people of that time felt and thought and experienced. And one of the ways that by teaching just the white history, it automatically programs people not to empathize with anybody else. Right? Because, you know, oh, we're supposed to empathize with the white settlers and not with the experience of Native Americans. But they're part of America too. And unless we empathize with them, we're not going to understand really the nature of the evil that the white settlers did to them. Right? Because you can't understand the evil unless you understand the suffering of people who have suffered from your evil. You, you, you have to put yourself in the position of this 16-year-old black girl and your master comes in and goes like, I, I, I want to screw you, right? You know, and how horrible and, you know, difficult that would have been to deal with. And, and like, you have to empathize with 16-year-old Sally Hemings or, 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 or the Native Americans whose land is being taken away in the same way you would empathize with yourself as if that was happening to you. But because we create this, these identities and this way of looking at history where we only empathize and understand white people, how could that not then make white people not empathize, empathize only with themselves, understand only themselves, and not other people in the present? So, David, um, the part three of your book is called Where Do We Go From Here?, and I was looking for like a really solid answer, which you didn't give us. I'm like, here are the steps of what to do from here. So we've had this great discussion. Um, where do we go from here? Right? We've learned, we read the book, we learn the history. What now? What do I do with all this knowledge and insight that I have gained from reading this? Hold on, well, you guys please. are you guys are doing it. You're spreading knowledge. You have this. That's, you have that's these what I'm saying. Like, yeah, like you're I'm spreading sorry. Knowledge <laughs> yeah. to your communities. I, yeah, and you're same making here. available a different way of looking at America. You're doing the work, right? Why are you Why are you gonna ask him the question that we all hate <laughs> at the, when we are in spaces predominantly white folks, and everybody takes everything we talked about to that point and turns around and I says, know, "Well, give but me he the wrote action a steps." Book and I want the action steps in the book. But, 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 but one thing I do say in the book is, you know, I try to explain people uh, what they will go through if they begin to change their identities, and I liken it to um, Helen Kubler Ross wrote. Uh, about this book on death and dying, about how we come to terms with our mortality and when we learn we're going to die. And she calls it the five stages of grief, and they are first denial, like, no, I, I can't, I'm not going to die. Uh, then then it's uh, um, uh, anger. You know, I'm so mad, I'm so mad at the doctor for giving me this information, you know, it has to be wrong. And then it's bargaining. Well, maybe, maybe, you know, I might die, uh, but, you know, it can't be this soon, right? And then it's grief. And then finally, it's acceptance. Now, that's an acceptance of our mortality, an acceptance of that the identity, the ways we process race needs to be abandoned. It first starts up with denial. There is no racism. In fact, 
There's more racism against white people than there is against people of color. And then it's anger. It's like, why are you bringing this subject up? You're just causing problems. Our school was just perfectly fine. Our business was just perfectly fine. Our hospital was just perfectly fine till you brought up these charges about racism. So you're the problem. And then it's bargaining. Okay, there's racism, but it's just a few bad apples, right? But as Chris Rock said, would you want to fly in an airplane that had a few bad apples as pilots? <laughs> would you want to be operated on a surgery department who had a few bad apples as surgeons? Of course not. But, you know, people of color, you, you deal with a few bad apples and, you know. And, of course, it's not just a few bad apples. It's systemic. And then it's grief. And sometimes white people go through this thing where it's like, I feel so bad about myself. I feel so bad about my people. And I understand that. But to me, that's not the purpose of my book. I don't, you know, I, I'm not interested in white people berating themselves for being white. I'm not interested in guilting and shaming them. It's just like, you know, there's this thing which exists because it's not, the system doesn't work on a person, mainly on a personal level. It works on a, a society large level. And then you come to acceptance. Okay, there is systemic racism in this country. It's supported by an ideology of whiteness. What can we all do to begin to dismantle it? And then you as a white person stop trying to deflect what part of you actually knows, right? Part of you actually suspects that there is racism in society and it is deeper than you want to admit. And then you stop resisting it. But the other thing that happens, the more you accept this, is you, you don't feel guilt and shame. Because you just understand, okay, this is something we all have to deal with. Let's go about dealing with it. And you approach it as an adult, right? So people can go through this, but it takes a lot of hard work. And it's not just learning things. It's not just changing your life so that you're not just dealing with people of your own community. Because we all have to learn from people of different communities. None of us knows everything. And, and, but you'll lead a more interesting life, too. This is why I tell people, if you diversify your your, 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 your people you come in contact and, and people you have friendships with, your life is going to be far richer. It's going to be far more creative. It's going to be far more interesting. So why would you want to refuse that? See, and that's, that's where I, I got a lot of, of things to do in the reflection of many of the chapters of the book from my own space, because there's so much that we invest in whiteness itself, understanding it, uh, perpetuating it, uh, 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 you know, trying to figure out how to resist it, and and you know, to 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 go back to Baldwin in many ways, Baldwin went through an entirely like outward facing re removal of the need to be something to whiteness, like on his own space, like things are going to try to make you all kinds of things. But if you know that that's not, that does not need to be your identity and you have the, the, the willingness to kind of excoriate that out and, and, and try to not be beholden to that both passively and impassively, there's a freedom that comes with that. And, and I see a call in your book to, to let go of our investment in this and, and, and I can see so many ways in which that happens. When you talk about the acceptance phase, I have encountered many white folks, folks of color as well, who have who have said, you know what? It, I'll give the perfect example. One of the things I would often encounter is teachers who are called racist by their students in the K-12 system. And so many folks would like shut all the way down because you're taught and socialized growing up that that's the worst thing that could be to be called racist. And if you stop right there, you never get to the point <laughs> where... <laughs> perpetuating actual racist practices in your classroom is should be a thing that's even worse than being called racist is actually mm -hmm. have, you know mm -hmm. so 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 i have seen folks undergo this process that disinvests from whiteness as a thing that i have to defend because i've written an identity around it beknownst to me or not that i will defend into death right but instead i say wait a minute that's not an identity that i have to pick up there is there, 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 there's something else I can pick up in instead. And now somebody saying you're racist has a response of, okay, let's look at the patterns. Let's, let's, let's see if that might be true. Because if it is, I, there's something I want to change about it. That's a very different stance. And I watched teachers in this K-12 system that I was working in go from a space of, I just don't want to even be called or associated with it to um, when a student would say, 
this is racist or this is having a racialized impact, them going into a mode of saying, all right, let's investigate that. Let's look at that. Let's look at the patterns. You know what? It is the fact that all the black kids didn't end up in my SS, ISS then out playing with their white peers um, and for the same behaviors. Okay, let me look at what's happening. Let me then take this down to the, to the level of saying, okay, oh, I didn't even see that before. That's a different stance what Ron Hyvis may call an, adop an adaptive stance. So I, I absolutely see, you know, those three suggestions, especially that you give around first getting up, getting to know more and not be duped by all these talking points, um, but also attacking that question of identity, right? Are, why are we wrapping our identity and vehemently defending something that, if explored and, and moved on, um, can yeah, have us be different? Yeah, you know, one of the things I talk about, you know, that we've changed, is we now have changed the definition of racism that it's not just because we we don't even say it's conscious profession of uh, uh, any sort of racist beliefs or actions. It's you have to admit it openly, right? Right. But we understand that there is a thing called implicit racism. Mm -hmm. There's there's explicit bias which people are conscious of, and there's implicit bias which people are not conscious of. And there's actually a study that you can do. You can go to a Harvard site, Psychological Psych, and you see, for instance, like people, there's an object in a child's hand. And pe people, even you know, certain black people, will tend to see a, a, an object as a gun in the hands of a young black child rather than a white child. And uh, the writer, Malcolm Gladwell, took this test, and he found that he had implicit, racial, unconscious mm -hmm. racial bias. And he says... I'm half black. I have con unconscious racial bias. And so, we, you know, and then that unconscious racist bias can be also that those 222, half of those 222 men, white medical students who profess the belief that black people feel less physical pain than white people, they may not even think that's a racist belief, right? They may think, oh, that's, that's just fact, right? And they don't understand, you know, and then the tendency of the white doctor not to listen to a black patient with as much empathy, with as much understanding, with as much willingness to believe their story, their narrative, as they would a white person. And they may not even be aware that they're doing that. There's, there's, there's a, a wonderful um, moment in a session I have to share. I was going to share this with you all anyway at some point, so this is a great time. Um, we actually had... Um, I, I was in a training and, and we were doing this workshop and we had two participants um, who were sitting in a waiting room together and they were commenting on the fact that the that folks were getting back faster when they were just nice, quote unquote, nice, <laughs> right? So nice folks seem to be going back forth, right? And there are definitely folks in that in that hospital waiting room and their story that that were pretty rude. They were in pain. They were short. They were hot tipper. Things that medical professionals in the, the space know happens. All right. Um, but it was interesting because what folks were identifying at nice as nice, this is one person was a, a white person from greater Minnesota and the other person was a black person from the Twin Cities. And as they were sitting in the waiting room together, because they were, they were, at, they were at some kind of workshop or something like that together, happened to be out. And and they had to take a friend to the emergency room. And so they're waiting for this friend. And, and what they counted or commented on is what was considered nice was completely vastly different. And they had this amazing discourse because what the black person perceived as nice amongst the uh, white folks' interactions with some of the hospital frontline staff, the white person in there was like, oh no, they were, they were really rude. And they were laying out this passive aggressive way of being really, really rude that the, that the other person didn't even pick up on. They were like, oh, I thought... I thought that was a, you know, they, they were just saying that that exchange was nice, right? And then what the white person said um, that they encountered as being rude, the other person was like, no, they were just being real direct, all right? They didn't leave room for pleasantries. And so there was this interesting, they were recounting this waiting room conversation, seeing the world so completely differently that has led them to a converse, an ongoing conversation. I think there's a point in the book where you're like, if, if you are white and don't have uh, friends who are people of color, there's a reason for that. If you are white and you have only two or three friends of color, there's a reason for that too. And we should know those reasons, right? And it doesn't give a judgment about what those reasons should be, but we should be in the practice of figuring out what's underpinning this. And I think that invitation in your book is really clear. Yeah, thank you. 
Um, so, David, I know that um, you do a lot of work here locally with BIPOC authors as well. And we, we joked a little bit before we started recording about the book ban that everyone's been talking about. So I'm so far, this book is not yet banned, but when it comes out with with just the title, I'm sure it will be banned in in many uh, states um, in the U.S. So we apologize. So we're telling it all about this now. Yes. To to your point earlier, it technically already is because yes. there are certain prohibitions already in place before your book is even published that you violate, especially in Florida. So yeah. um, you know I, you can uh, you Texas. can already make that make that yeah. claim. I just don't know the specific rules in Texas, but the specific rules in Florida ban certain things outright just by nature of some of the things you mentioned in here. And so right. even if it's not in an official oh, list know. anywhere, it definitely ain't going to be in anybody with a public contract. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. But thank you so much, David, for, for your continued work in helping me to find words, which I can't find still. So what I'm going to do is just carry your book around and just read the sentences that I've highlighted for certain situations, I'm just going to use it as like, okay, here's exactly why that's not true. Or here's no, make exactly them buy the how book I before feel. you give that free knowledge. Yeah, that's there true. you go. That's true. Make them buy the book before you give away that free knowledge. We, we done giving away free stuff. That's true. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, producer of Counter Stories, and VP of Programming at Ampers. And I'm Don Eubanks. Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at the Dendros Group. And our special guest? David Murrah, author of Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, Racial Myths and Our American Narratives. Thanks for joining us. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. <laughs>